0: You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org
1: Hey, we want to uh, pray and particularly we want to pray for our kids. Uh, We do that every Sunday. Um, and So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks that uh, because of who you are, we can actually dance on the waves. Give us grace to as we walk through the waters today, outside our lives and the streets, and inside our lives, and pray your special blessing on our kids. You give them peace today, uh, and the thunder and the lightning. Pray you protect our schools. Pray your peace, um, particularly in parts of Mexico that are experiencing flooding now. And pray you would watch over us in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. So good to be with everyone this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, my name is Brenna Rubio. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the other pastor, other co-pastor here at City Church of Long Beach. Uh, This morning we are continuing, and really we're almost coming to the end of a series we've been doing this summer looking into the book of Exodus, this big story of God and God's relationship with the people of Israel, bringing them out of captivity and ultimately towards a place uh, of freedom. So, yesterday I was at a memorial service uh, for an old friend, uh, someone who'd been connected with one of my first ministry teams ever. And it was just a, a, an incredible gathering in so many ways. Um, this woman had had just an incredible influence on so many people uh, but particularly on this ministry team that i had been part of where i had really gotten to know her Um, and and in this team which was one of the healthiest just kind of team cultures that i had ever been part of uh, there was this saying that really came in so many ways from her that we would we would repeat over and over and over again and the saying was, reality is our friend. You think about that for just a second, but reality is our friend. So that there's a sense of, hey, when we are thinking about, we just did a big project together or a big event, and we're going to take a little bit of time and we're going to think about what worked well and what worked not so well. And maybe we're even going to give each other a little bit of feedback, which, you know, can be a little sensitive for people. Um, we might start out by thinking, hey, reality is our friend. It's all right to name what was really, really good. And it's all right to name what was not so good about this event or this this project that we just finished. And and it was this very grounding sort of phrase, this like, hey, everybody take a breath, because so often we don't live that way. We don't live as if reality is our friend. We live a little bit in fear of people pointing out uncomfortable truths. Uh, We live often a little bit in fear of people asking us questions that invite us to go beyond the surface of our lives, right? Reality is our friend is a way of saying it's okay if somebody asks them, no, but how are you really? When you've just said, oh, sure, I'm fine, right? No, but reality is our friend how are you, how are you really more than just the surface of our lives to say, what, what is really going on underneath? What, what truths are we perhaps avoiding? Because we're worried they're going to make us uncomfortable, or they're going to prompt us to change or reality is our friend. So our story this morning, um, The sort of the Charlton Heston version, the Hollywood version, the simplified version of it is one where the people of Israel have been brought out of captivity in Egypt uh, and they have been on a long journey and now they're at a pause point. Um, And they have, if you remember, for those of you who were here last week, they're at the point of the journey where they have received the 10 commandments from God. And last week you guys did an incredible job. Crowdsourcing. I was amazed. We actually were able, working all together, to list the entirety of the Ten Commandments. It was pretty phenomenal. Um, So they've received the Ten Commandments kind of verbally from God, but now they're kind of at just the base of Mount Sinai waiting around because Moses, their leader, has gone up to the top of the mountain and is meeting with God, and they're not invited. Moses goes up to have the special conference. And they're at the foot of the mountain. And well, basically what happens is they get tired of waiting. It's actually kind of a long time. And, and they just kind of go, hey, we don't know if he's coming back. And so they decide the most obvious thing to do is to violate the first of the Ten Commandments, the very first one that says, you shall have no other gods before me. And they say, hey, let's make our own God. Like we think maybe God's abandoned us. Seems like Moses has abandoned us. Let's just make our own God. And we'll, we'll take care of things for ourselves. And when Moses finds out what's been happening down at the base of the mountain while he's been up on the mountaintop, he gets so angry that he comes down and he takes these freshly engraven tablets that have the Ten Commandments on them, and he smashes them. And you know, this these wonderful, uh, this wonderful revelation from God just shatters. that's That's the thumbnail of the story, the Hollywood version of the story. But today we're going to dig in just a little bit deeper into what was actually going on with all these players in the story, with the people, with Moses, with God. And we want to ask the question, what realities were being avoided in the story? And how maybe could they and could we learn to make reality more our friend? So our story this morning uh, is going to be read by our friend Corrine Youssef, uh, and it starts when Moses is still deep in his time with God up at the top of the mountain, uh, and he learns for the first time that there's a problem. He starts to hear, perhaps, what's happening. Something is happening down at the camp, and what is his first reaction? So Corrine, if you would go ahead and unmute,
2: uh, and she's going to read the story for us. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with ill with evil intent, that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened.
0: Will of God, this is the word of God.
2: Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you so much, Corrine. could tell that you're a teacher. You read that so smoothly and with expression. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Corrine. That was was fantastic. Um, So we're going to look at a a couple of things going on here but we want to just start with with just this simple idea of of what what is it like to be the people you know you've been on this long journey through the desert for ever decades um, and you've heard the stories right that god is good god delivered out of egypt god you know has done lots of great things in the past but it's been a long time and it's hard it's actually hard to believe that god is still at work it, it it's not just the the people of israel obviously that struggle with this this is this is you and me it's been a while since the last miracle hasn't it you I mean, think about your own lives how long has it been since you had that moment where everything was clear, you completely trusted God, Everything was right in the world. You just knew, man, this is awesome. God, God is it. it it's probably been a minute. And for some of us, maybe it was maybe it was this morning. I just encourage you to get off this call right now and just sort of meditate and enjoy that moment because, The problem is these things go away and they end up in our past. And so then we feel stuck. Moses goes up on the mountain and Moses was really the one who sort of had the best connection with God. And and the people of God are still trying to, you know, Israel, the, the people of God are trying to figure out like, how do I connect? How do I know God? And there's all kinds of, There's all sorts of kinds of mystery with God. We don't have direct access. The people of God did not have direct access. And they've been through a lot of trauma in their lives. They've been through a lot of really hard stuff. A lot of people have died. And so they're just not sure that they can trust this invisible God. and and so that so i just want us to have a moment here and have some empathy for the people of israel who are like hey let's go find another god like this is what we do friends we do it all the time we do it in small ways we do it in bigger ways we we do it with how we spend our free time we don't want to pause and reflect or or pray or think about reality that's maybe coming to face us with some truth that we don't want. Instead, we just click that next Netflix show, right? It, it's a small idol. And then we do it in big ways. We do it when we set up our whole life to be built around financial success or our own self image these things it's hard to trust god it's, it's hard to trust a god who is invisible who is often silent the old when the old mystics said god's first language is silence that's i don't want that <laughs> you know like ah oh, it's so hard so um, I got a, a text message this 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 week, just a few days ago, actually. And uh, my friend on the other side said that I could, he gave me permission to use this. So, um, but just imagine this. So this comes through, on, I don't even, I think it was maybe Wednesday night or something. Uh, Hi, Pastor Bill. How are you? It's me. Um, I hope this message finds you well. How can I just trust God 100%? My anxiety disorder is off the charts and I keep telling myself to trust. But I don't know how to let go. And I'm like, dude, I get you. So I said, you know, I'm sorry to hear this, friend. That sounds hard. Uh, You know, I don't think white knuckling faith is real faith, you know, where you just kind of like, oh, I believe I believe. You know, learning how to lament, to face your brokenness, to find healing from shame. You know, that's part of the journey. Often it requires therapy and meds, community, prayer, hard work, and surrender. Like all these things that, that are intention, right? And we ended up having a lovely conversation, a long conversation. And, you know, he's this courageous soul who's facing uh, some major health issues some relational stuff, some spiritual trauma from the past. And and he just wants to trust God. I'm like, so do I. And I, you know, I'm not saying that he's running after all these idols. I, I don't think he is any more so than I am or you are. But what happens is it's, It's hard to trust. God doesn't show up the way we want God to show up. Certainly not with quick fixes. Certainly not with easy answers. And we get stuck with our chronic health issues and our trauma. And so no wonder that we turn to other things. And what if part of the invitation of this passage is for us to be gentle with ourselves and to to ask some questions and to realize that maybe reality is our friend. Maybe naming our distrust is actually the first step towards building that trust again. Hmm.
0: Yeah, continuing that whole idea of the people of Israel. Well, sure, creating the bull is a problem, right? It's it's not great. I'm not pretending it is. There, there is this part of us going like, yeah, it makes sense. They've been through a lot. They don't really know how to trust God. We often don't either. Um, and they're having some trouble trusting their leaders and in ways that make sense as well. I love this line really early on in this chapter where they're, <laughs> when the people are talking to themselves. They say, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, this fellow Moses, um, distancing, right? Who is this guy who decided he was in charge? Who is this guy who is supposed to be the go-between, between us and God, but we just end up feeling confused. Moses didn't feel like one of them, and for some real reasons. He actually had experienced a different reality than they had. While they had been enslaved as a people, through no fault of his own, he had ended up in a more bicultural position where he grew up in more privilege, Living in the palaces of Egypt, living with just more luxury, not enslaved in the same way that his people was. And so they're thinking, who is this person? And now he's gone. He's been gone. The scripture says for 40 days and 40 nights, which is probably just a way of saying a really, really, really long time. It's not necessarily literal, right? But it's been, it's been a long time. He was never one of us. And now look, he's gone off and he's abandoned us. So then they say, okay, fine. Let's pick a leader who will give us what we want. Somebody who gets us and will follow directions. And they go to, (laughs) it's really kind of funny. They look to Moses' brother, Aaron, who's also been a priest, a priest who they've known for much, much longer than they've known Moses. Uh, And, Basically, it takes one sentence. I mean, Aaron does not come off particularly well in this story. They say, come, make us gods who will go before us. And he says, sure, absolutely no resistance to this idea. You want me to make you some gods and then you'll make me in charge? Sure, I'll take that vacant opening of leadership, whatever you want. The story tells us that he gathers up gold, and there's actually a bit of a sense um, that he might be taking it forcibly, that there may be some people, in particular the women, who may be putting up some resistance. And some of this, again, this is people just kind of like, well, reading a bit because of what we don't see in the text. Because the other key leader who could have been involved is Moses' sister, Miriam, who we don't see in the story so it leads us to wonder is Miriam perhaps one of the women who the, the jewelry is really being wrestled away from but gold is gathered possibly some people are resisting gold is gathered thrown into the fire melted down tools are used to be able to form these idols later on there's this classic line that Aaron has just to again emphasize like the kind of leader that the people of Israel chose. And just really how how spineless Aaron is portrayed to be in this story because Moses has come down from the mountain and confronts Aaron. And Aaron says, well, they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Whoops. How did it happen? I don't know. So incredibly passive in this story you know usually when um when we look at this passage what we make the most of is the idols themselves look the people of israel they didn't know who to trust they didn't trust god they didn't trust moses they picked a leader in aaron who clearly is not trustworthy he's just doing what they want and they make these idols and don't we do that too? And and there's it's a good interpretation. Will Gaffney, Old Testament scholar who you hear Bill and I quote a lot, you know, taking this tone of, of sympathy, we get it. We get it because we do the same thing. She writes, we can say what they woulda, shoulda, oughta do, but we have our own bull. Our idols are not statues or icons. The bull we worship is whiteness and patriarchy and sexism. Guns and money and fame and power and sex and our imaginations about how it used to never be and never will be again. We worship other people's opinions and their possessions and our own. We worship people who don't love us or even respect us. We devote our time, our money, our resources, our passion to everyone and everything but God sometimes. And we hear that and we know it's true. Absolutely. We do this. But for me this morning, I think the question that is really grabbing me is more but why? Why do we do that? And are we willing to just acknowledge our own capacity for self deception, our own just determination to avoid reality, to avoid the deeper truths? Because We're not in control of those because they scare us, because they make us uncomfortable. The people absolutely knew that their idols were idols. Aaron knew what he was doing. The people knew the calf had not jumped full formed out of the fire, that it had been fashioned by tools from their jewelry that had been ripped out of people's ears. And they still wanted to believe it. They didn't want to know what they really knew. They did not believe that reality was their friend. And I think that's me. That's all of us. Right? We can look collectively, all of the political struggles happening right now over how we tell history. What history are we willing to admit actually happened? Because if we admit what actually happened, we might have to grieve it. We might have to repent of things like slavery and institutionalized racism. But I can think of so many other times in my life, too, where I've only been willing to admit so much about things that I was struggling with. Do I admit? exactly how unhappy i am in this job not this one this isn't me right now but in the past am i willing to admit that i feel like i can only bring half of myself into particular spaces am i willing to admit that there's a conversation that i need to have with someone in my family or am i just going to keep avoiding it do i really believe that reality is my friend, or am I just going to live with the fake surfacy version that just helps me putter along in the moment? What if the people of Israel had been willing to give God more of a chance? What if? And we can ask ourselves those same questions.
1: lot to think about right there Brenner Rubio thank you <laughs> I, I kind of feel like I want to just stop and think um, but I will say a little bit more um, so uh, one of the ways to to come to face with reality in this passage is to look at Moses himself and Moses there are, there are a couple of moments here with Moses in his relationship with God and with the people that are, are very telling Um, There's this great moment, and then there's this, "Eh, maybe that's not so great moment. So the great moment is when Moses pushes back on God, because God's like, I'm going to wipe these people out. Like, these people are terrible. And Moses is like, you can't do that. Like, I, you know, you're God. And what are the Egyptians going to say, right? So in verses 11 and 13... Uh, 11 through 13, uh, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power? Like turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, right? So there's, in some ways, Moses is calling God's bluff, right? God's like, these people are a mess. I'm done with them. And Moses is like, no, you are not and I feel like the, the best prayers in my life have consistently been those when I've been willing to, to kind of go toe to toe with God and be like, you can't do this. <laughs> you know, like you must, you know, make this right. Uh, and I think that's actually what God wants. God wants us to show up and really wrestle. And Moses does. Moses is like, look, I that is not okay. I'm not going to sit back and and let this injustice prevail. And I'm going to go toe-to-toe with God if I have to. And then there's this other moment with Moses. And and we're going to... I want you guys to just sort of think about this. So don't take what I'm saying here as gospel truth. I'm trying to do the best with the passage that Brenner Rubio made me teach. <laughs> um so there's this moment when God tells Moses to go and kill the people super awkward moment and and Moses doesn't gathers yeah, the people kills off a bunch so in verse 27 and 28 of of this chapter Then Moses said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And that day about 3,000 people died. And so I want to ask this question. So on one hand, Moses has this really direct, honest, conversation with God. And then there's this other moment where God says, kill these people. And what I want to wonder out loud with you, for you to think about, is this. Was that really what God said? I mean, the Bible's clear, Moses said to them, verse 27, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, go kill people. But is that really what God says? Where in some ways, do you wonder if maybe Moses kind of wanted God to say that? Maybe Moses finally gets down the mountain and he is so angry he feels so disrespected moses does that he's willing to deceive himself and say that his anger is god's anger and that god wants to kill these people because he's so mad so i want let, let's just think about this for a second One of the things, as as Christians, we believe that, uh, you know, Jesus is like God, right? And we also believe that God is like Jesus. One of my favorite bumper stickers of all time is the bumper sticker that says, Who would Jesus bomb? Right? I mean... You don't see Jesus bombing his enemies. He doesn't kill them. He forgives them. He blesses them. He heals them on occasion. He doesn't kill them off. In fact, he would rather die in their place. And if that's what God is really like, hmm, kind of makes you wonder, did Moses get it right here? And I want to take a moment and just ponder with you how we view the Bible in these very awkward moments. This is not the only one where God commands people to kill off other people. In Deuteronomy, you have the Canaanite genocide commanded. God commands the people of Israel to destroy an entire people group, an entire culture, genocide. God commands it. And so we, we have to ask this question, what do we do with the Bible? How do we handle those places in the Bible that really don't sound like God? And is the Bible true after all? And then do we just get to cherry pick what's in the Bible, right? These are real questions that real people have, you and me have, when we come to the Bible. And I think this is my suspicion. You take it the way you take it. I think the Bible that we have is exactly the Bible God wanted us to have. And I think what God wanted us to do is to to find God's heart. And I think that's why God sent, sent Christ, so we could see, like, oh, this is what God is really like. I knew it all along. It's not the God who commands people to die. That's in there so that we can think, ooh man, I do deceive myself a lot, don't I? I get so self-righteous. And I think everyone who disagrees with me, you know, politically, they are the devil. And then I think that's what God thinks. And so I in in part, I think we have these passages in the Bible to invite us to really question Question our own motives. Question our own violence. Question what we think God is saying. And to have maybe a bit more humility. The courage to go toe-to-toe with God, right? Face-to-face with God like Moses did and say, hey, this is, we need more justice here. These people need to be protected, not taken advantage of or hurt like yes that's super healthy but then this idea of when we deceive ourselves and we we put in our holy scriptures our holy ter- church teachings or as parents when we tell our kids god wants this for you or i remember a friend once he went up to this girl who was you know he thought she was really beautiful he goes up to her and he says you know god told me i'm going to marry you and she just looks at him and she says, God didn't tell me that. <laughs> right? I mean, how many times do we deceive ourselves? And I wonder if that's part of what's going on here. I'm going to turn it back to Brennan Rubio. You make sense. I, maybe I just totally blow this out of the water, but uh, it's your own fault. Because uh, you that section.
0: No, this is so, so good. Bill and I had some great conversation about this passage over my uh, kitchen, kitchen island. Um, it's just amazing isn't it? Like, when we think of this passage, this story, the focus is always on how the Israelites screwed up, right? How they made these idols, they deceived themselves. And usually, going with some of the conversation we find the chat, we avoid this part of the story. The part where, okay, but did Moses screw up? Did Moses deceive himself? Because it's really uncomfortable to wrestle with this part of the story where 4,000 people died. And to ask these questions, was this really God? Is Is this really who God is? And so we want to end today pivoting to a story that we think has some similarities to this one. A story all about self deception and a story where the focus sometimes has not always been in the right spot, but a story that shows this Jesus who shows us what God is really like. Okay, who is this Jesus? So often, this story is called The Story of the Woman Caught in Adultery from John 8. And I couldn't find, someone to credit this to if somebody else knows who it is feel free to drop it in the chat uh, but I read a suggestion recently that I loved that we have been mistitling this story for centuries because it would be so much more accurate to call this the story of the men caught in hypocrisy right again who is it whose mistakes are we focusing on so the men caught in hypocrisy. So some of you may remember the story. Jesus is out doing his thing and a bunch of men, religious leaders, drag in a barely covered woman and throw her down saying, this woman has been caught in adultery. And Moses told us to stone women like this. Jesus Doesn't she deserve death? Just like those Israelites, right? Caught in the making of idols. Doesn't she deserve death? Now, the reality is, and one of the the reasons we might title this story, the men caught in hypocrisy, is that Moses didn't actually just say that women, women like this, should be stoned to death. The actual law that you could find in Leviticus 20 or in Deuteronomy 22 would say that both of the parties should be stoned. Um, So why did they just bring the woman? Clearly she wasn't acting on her own if she'd been caught in adultery, but that is not actually the argument that Jesus makes. He takes his time. He kind of draws in the dirt a little bit. We don't know what it is that he's writing, but he mulls as all of these men hover around him, waiting to see what he's going to do with this poor, shamed woman who's been tossed at his feet. And what he responds with is this, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And slowly all the men walk away because what Jesus has done is he hasn't said, yep, you're being, you're being hypocrites because the law really says this, you know, and let's make sure we follow that law, not talking to you till you bring the man out here so we can stone him as well. What he confronts them with is their own self-deception because there are so many ways that they're clearly lying to themselves. They're lying to themselves about who they really are their own moral self-righteousness because do they follow the law perfectly? Are they not at risk of condemnation? Have they not screwed up? Of course they have. Of course they have. They need to live in light of reality. But they've also been lying to themselves about who God is. That, That God is someone who can be captured and and really described and boxed in by rules, legalism, law that, that God is on their side, that God is angry and disgusted at the same people that they're angry at, disgusted by. They've been deceiving themselves. They're taking all of this yuckiness in their own hearts and saying, this must be who God is, the same way that Moses did. And Jesus says, none of these things are true. (laughs) There's more than enough guilt to go around. More than enough brokenness. We all screw up. This is reality. But reality is also that God is a God of mercy. That God knows us, loves us, sees us, forgives us. That God is not going to respond with anger and punishment and judgment. That the words that Jesus spoke to the woman, saying, hey, who accuses you? She says, no one. Go and sin no more. If they had stuck around, I actually want to believe those men could have heard those words as well. Hey, who's accusing you? What if you go and sin no more? It's it's in the flesh in Jesus. Reality is our friend. The reality of yes, we're broken as well as beautiful. And yes, there's a God dripping with mercy who wants to be with us still as we walk, as we journey. We don't have to lie to ourselves. It won't always be comfortable, but reality is our friend. There's more than enough grace to go around.